0: Hi, everybody. I'm Adam Hofberg, and I'm joined today by Dr. Katie Lewis with the Austin Riggs Center. And she's going to talk to us today at the American Association of Suicidology Conference about some of the research that she's doing um, over at the Austin Riggs Center. So welcome, Katie.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Adam.
0: Great. It's a pleasure to have you as well. So just jumping in to tell us a little bit about yourself and the center you work out and, and, you know, why you're interested in this work.
1: Sure. Uh, So my current role is as the research psychologist at the Austin Riggs Center. Uh, Riggs is a small residential psychiatric treatment facility in Western Massachusetts uh, that specializes in treating uh, adult patients who experience chronic complex psychopathology. So typically uh, patients come to the Austin Riggs Center after they've already had uh, you know multiple uh, trials of different psychotherapy or medication management uh, regimens, and have just uh, found that treatment hasn't been working to really address their underlying concerns and underlying issues. Uh, so they come to our hospital and they receive intensive psychodynamically oriented treatment uh, they see their therapist four times a week they have uh, comprehensive psychopharm services uh, social work services um, and uh, nursing support and uh, they uh, complete a six-week intensive evaluation period during which they get um, you know sort of oriented to treatment they begin working with their therapist they get uh, comprehensive psychological testing at that point and at the end of the six weeks uh, of this initial evaluation period um, it sort of culminates in this case conference where diagnostic uh, decisions are made and sort of treatment recommendations are formulated, and patients at that point either choose to leave to go to a different uh, treatment facility, um, you know, if if that's the decision that they sort of reached with their therapist, or uh, they remain in treatment at the center. and. Uh, they, I think our average length of stay at this point for patients is somewhere between six to eight months. So often they will be staying and uh, will continue to just sort of uh, do this deep dive into working on their uh, mental health issues that they really haven't had an opportunity to, to work at in the same way in their previous treatments. Uh, and sometimes they can stay as long as a year or two. Sometimes it's a shorter length of stay. Um, but we really do get to know patients uh, as they stay in our treatment facility. And because of that, it's a really wonderful place to do research. There's not sort of a rush to do a brief evaluation. Um, You know, we can do more longitudinal studies or studies that really can uh, get more into the complexity of patients' experiences. So my role as the research psychologist is to help them grow and develop uh, their suicide research uh, and prevention program. And the main study we have going right now is an ecological momentary assessment that's looking at how daily interpersonal experiences um, of patients at the center uh, are related to momentary fluctuation situations in their suicidal ideation uh, most patients are coming into the center with you know, a history of at least suicidal ideation. Uh, I think around half have a history of multiple suicide attempts. So suicidality is a really common clinical concern with patients at our hospital. And what we're trying to do is really understand how interpersonal dynamics and interpersonal functioning serve as either protective factors against uh, this sort of ongoing suicidality that they're uh, contending with, or as risk factors. And we know from past research that interpersonal relationships can function both as protective factors or as risk factors for suicide but to my knowledge there this hasn't really been looked at on a momentary level there's been some research to show that things like arguments can trigger suicidal ideation or suicidal impulses Um, but the the sort of day-to-day experiences and reasons for why those particular events might be triggering hasn't really been looked at in depth Um, so that's my my main study right now in the work that I'm doing.
0: Very fascinating, and uh, I think we're going to go into that with a little bit more detail because mm-hmm. it's uh, very interesting work. Um, just to give some of the fundamentals, though, to folks who may not know what ecological momentary assessment is or just the idea of uh, assessing very often, and how how do you do that?
1: Uh, the, the way specifically that we do it in, in our study is we have uh, participants complete interpersonal ratings uh, using an app on their smartphone, uh, so they, uh, they do get... Um, Reminders, but basically the to do the ratings uh, when they sign up for the study, they might say, you know, can you remind me at like lunch and dinner that I should be doing this study, which is which is helpful. Um, there are other approaches that uh, where participants would actually do ratings after getting prompts to do you know to do the ratings, but we, we like to leave it a little bit more open and let. Um, patients that are in who are in our study decide when they're doing the ratings since we're basing them on interpersonal events and those are hard to predict you know so we're using an app for our study specifically that Sends reminders, but um, basically that participants can open and it's about a you know two minutes worth of really quick questions. Some of the questions that they're completing are on, are on sort of like slider scales, um, you know, like how anxious were you during this interaction, and they can sort of select how anxious they felt. Um, and others might be multiple choice questions, like you know, did you experience. Uh, any thoughts of doing the following during this interaction. And one of the options might be um, you know, suicide, but we also ask about uh, impulses to drink, impulses to break something, impulses to uh, isolate. So we're trying to sample a range of experiences that people might have in response to interpersonal stress. But there are lots of ways that other people, other researchers have approached ecological momentary assessment, which really just means... Um, sampling experiences over the course of time to get a sense of how people might be um, behaving or thinking about their experiences over time in in real time um, without sort of the distortion that can happen from self-report or retrospective reports.
0: Absolutely and you just kind of touched on that but um, go into that a little bit more why it's important to get these responses sort of in the moment or as it's happening and and why why does that especially around suicide and suicide prevention why is that important?
1: Well, of course, uh, suicidal ideation can fluctuate very widely and and because it can often happen during periods when people are particularly affectively distressed or during high periods of just stress in general, it might be difficult to retrospectively do a a really clear report of how intense a suicidal thought was um, particularly if it's a more subtle kind of urge that flares up in the moment people might kind of disregard it and forget about it afterwards but these moments might be really important um, if you think about how they accumulate over time uh, or how they you know how they might signal the salience of a particular interpersonal dynamic for um, for being a, a triggering event Uh, So it's, you know, it is important to capture in real time to get a a clear understanding just of how, um, how variable these impulses are over time. And, you know, and I, I put as much weight also on the report of the interpersonal experiences, too, because I think people often have an image of how they tend to behave in. Um, in their relationships that might not always correspond to how they are actually behaving in their relationships and the same with how they perceive other people as acting towards them uh, there's a lot of revision that can happen um as we look back over over our day um even over the course of a couple of hours so to be able to capture it in the moment, I think is really valuable and um, an important um new approach that many people have been taking in the field of suicide research, and we're hoping to be able to be a part of that also
0: very cool, yeah, it's kind of a really novel that you guys are able to use in an app built into their smartphone is this a special app you've all developed
1: no no this is uh we have gone through a company called life data um i know there are a, a number of companies that are offering sort of similar platforms um we started out by using uh, which involved sending participants an email link that they had to access and that was very cumbersome and nobody liked it so we switched over to uh to more of an app-based platform and it's worked out really well
0: very cool. So I understand this is a longitudinal study. So you know you're still collecting data. But you know what do you hope to find with this type of study? What what are some of your hopes around the uh, what your results will be, and how can you then apply that for effective? intervention and prevention?
1: Sure. Well, the, the first part of our study actually involves a really comprehensive personality and interpersonal experiences assessment. So um, we give participants uh, different questionnaires that are related to this um, circumplex model of personality, which I won't get into, but it's it's basically a model of personality that tries to chart things like um, the kinds of interpersonal problems that people have been having or their sensitivities to behaviors and others along the dimensions of um Agency and communion. So to find out basically how people see their see themselves in terms of their leadership qualities or their affiliation um, approaches or their uh, you know if they tend to describe themselves as having problems with being kind of aloof or distant from people. So we really map out how people describe themselves as functioning along these dimensions and we also include some other assessments like we have a facial emotion recognition task um, just kind of assuming that if people are having difficulty interpreting the emotional cues of others in their daily life that that probably is going to have an impact on their ability to form meaningful connections with other people or to use other people to kind of help them help themselves self-regulate. We start out with that really comprehensive assessment to just get an idea of, of how people are viewing themselves and where we would expect their interpersonal challenges to come up in daily life. And then we use this to uh, to sort of compare to over the course of a two-week period as the participants are doing these daily ratings to really look at when they do seem to be having more um, stress in interpersonal situations or when they do seem to be having suicidal ideation triggered. And my hope is that we'll be able to get uh, a sense of um, probably a few personality profiles that will come up where, for example, we might find, um, you know, this sort of an obvious hypothesis, but one idea might be that um, people who describe themselves at baseline as being pretty desiring of closeness with others and valuing um, the ability to be open and to connect with others, uh, you know, that these individuals might be much more susceptible to having suicidal ideation be triggered if they feel like during interactions, their interaction partners being very aloof um, or, uh, you know, Know, acting in some sort of other way, like having, you know, just seeming to be more affectively cold or distant during interactions. Um, and I don't think that'll be. I think the case. I don't think that'll be the case for everybody. I think there might be people with other profiles who might be more sensitive to things like shame or ridicule. Who will be? Who will describe themselves as being triggered by other kinds of interpersonal dynamics? Um, so that's sort of our hypothesis. And if we are able to find these profiles and uh, describe them, I. You know, I'm I'm also a clinician, so I picture that. Uh, you know, my work with suicidal patients, something having an understanding of that would be very useful for me. I'd be able to, you know, be able to take sort of um, you know baseline understanding of a uh, patient's personality functioning and their interpersonal history, and use that to to begin forming some predictions about the types of situations that might get them into trouble, and hopefully these will generalize across scenarios. So something like there's somebody that seems particularly sensitive to or triggered by being controlled by other people that could come up in family context that could come up in work context. Um, and it's, you know, something that sort of cross cuts across the more um, specific context of interactions to get more at the sort of interpersonal climate.
0: So whenever we use uh, new technologies or sort of implement new approaches towards suicide prevention, sometimes there's hesitancy both among clinicians but also from IRB or regulatory review boards. Um, Tell us a little bit about your experience working through that and, and what you've found so far.
1: Sure. So the Austin Riggs Center, um, there are many things I, I love about it, but um, you know, one thing that it's sort of known for is that it has this uh, approach to treatment and approach to working with patients that has been very resistant to introducing, uh, you know, new technologies or things that might be that might interfere with just the basic interpersonal engagement and um, depth of insight-oriented work that um, that occurs at the center. And so because of that, when I started in this position and came in and said, hey, I want everybody to be on their smartphones for 14 days <laughs> to be in my study, uh, the clinical staff had some concerns. The IRB had some concerns um, So I, I, you know, I ended up having to really uh, provide a lot of education and background information on how people had used this technology in other clinical settings uh, and, you know, do just a lot of um, staff education and staff presentation events to uh, just introduce everybody just to the basic technology and, and the reasons for why I thought this would be an important kind of study for us to do at the hospital and they you know they had a number of concerns that that have been raised in the literature before like they were worried if you're asking people uh you know three or four times a day if they are thinking of suicide is that going to trigger suicidal ideation in somebody that wouldn't otherwise be thinking of it and fortunately uh i didn't have to answer that question myself there's been previous studies looking at this exact question to know that just asking doesn't seem to increase the risk. And in fact, it can often decrease the risk because people are, you know, having an outlet to be able to report on it and feel like they're engaged with somebody about it. Um, But they had other more subtle concerns that were difficult to address, um, you know, like uh, clinical staff were worried that Patients participating in the study might split treatment in in some way, like they might um, find it easier to report certain things either to me or through an app that they might not necessarily have brought to treatment and might not be working on actively with their therapist. So we ended up having to do a pilot study uh, where we – really tried to, you know, we had the basic structure of the study, but we complemented it with, uh, you know, feedback form that uh, participants completed. And more often than not, they also asked to meet with me afterwards. So it ended up involving both, uh, you know, a, f- a feedback form that they filled out and then also some just more um, informal interviews that we did talking about Uh, You know, for example, whether they felt like participating in the study made them more or less likely to interact with other people, Um, we could see that it could go both ways. It could make people sort of more interpersonally focused during the two-week period or uh, because they knew they would have to be rating interactions, they might just kind of back away and, and not want to uh, to interact with other people. Um, we asked them if they had brought up their participation with their therapist, because on the research end, we have, you know, the confidentiality piece to this, where we don't um, tell their therapist that, that their patient is participating. So we asked them if they had voluntarily brought it up during treatment, uh, and just in general tried to solicit feedback, um, even from non-participants in the patient community. At the, you know, at the end of the pilot study, we came back and just said, This study has been going on for two months. Has anybody noticed? Does anybody have feedback? Does anyone have concerns? Um, And we also did that with the clinical staff at the end of the pilot study. And fortunately, nobody felt like the study had really any impact. Um, The patients that participated said that they didn't feel like it particularly changed their behavior um, with other uh, patients in the in the hospital, many of them said they couldn't remember if they brought it up with their therapist, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> uh, and uh, and you know they they in general did talk about finding the study pretty meaningful, um, and they gave us some great feedback about what could increase the meaning of their participation for them. For example, they said if they could get even just a, a brief summary report of their ratings over the two-week period as sort of a summary at the end, that they would find that more meaningful than um, than the gift certificates we were offering them. Uh, so we actually added that in, and we're doing that now. Um, we, we give every participant a, a summary report at the end of their participation. Um, so it was really valuable, and uh, clinical staff didn't, you know, notice an impact. In fact, they were surprised that the pilot study had gone on and they really hadn't noticed. um, And the patient community also didn't really have any concerns. So, you know, in some ways it was, uh, you know, sort of a no news is good news feedback. You know, I, I think that the concerns the clinical staff brought up are really interesting. And I'm not sure that we, I'm not sure just because we didn't find that it that it was having any impact on patients, that that means it wasn't, it isn't having any impact. I think that um, all of us would kind of like to leave that as an open question and not assume it's a negative impact, but just to sort of wonder about, you know, I know there are are more interventions coming out now for suicidality that are focused on sort of mindfulness or app-based reporting of suicidal ideation. So in some ways it's hard to picture this not having some sort of impact on the people who are participating, but um, right now we haven't found a clear way of studying it that would really tell us the information that particular information but it does it certainly doesn't seem to be having any sort of disruptive or adverse effects which i think was the the main concern
0: yeah thanks and i'm uh, it's very important and i'm glad you worked through some of those barriers and i feel like you know that's been emerging as a theme at this year's aas is that folks are really trying to push boundaries try new things try new applications new techniques so it's great to hear about this work any final thoughts before we let you go katie
1: no, I'm just I'm very grateful that you guys are doing this sort of podcast. And um, this conference has just been, uh, it's been really wonderful, because I hear people presenting on this sort of tension between doing, you know, sort of a theory based very focused assessment of suicide risk, but also introducing more complex factors and more unknowns into, you know, the types of things that could influence, um, suicidality in, in different individuals. And, uh, I'm kind of encouraged feeling like the study that we're doing is at least fitting into that conversation in a way. And, um, it's been really great hearing the presenters here and then, you know, taking that as inspiration to keep doing the work that, that we're doing. Um, and it's nice to have a place to sort of pull my thoughts together with this podcast. So <laughs>
0: Fantastic. And how can folks go to learn more about your work or your center and um, if they want to reach out to you with any follow-up questions?
1: Sure, we do. Uh, we have a website for the Austin Riggs Center. It's uh, austinriggs.net, and Austin is spelled A U S T E N R I G G dot net. Uh, and my email address um, for anybody that might be interested in learning more about the study or just getting in touch is uh, katie.lewis at austinriggs.net. Um, so I'd be really happy to hear from people and, um, always interested in, uh, feedback about the work we're doing or question, happy to answer questions anytime.
0: Excellent. And we'll definitely include links on that with the notes from this podcast. So folks can really get in touch with you easily. Thank you. Well, thanks for being here. Thanks so much. Great.